Welcome to the Veterinary Project Podcast, episode 014. Welcome to the show created by vets featuring absolutely no pets. This is the Veterinary Project Podcast, hosted by Dr. Michael Bug and Dr. Jonathan Light. Our resident veterinarians have swapped out their stethoscopes in favor of microphones to bring you the Veterinary Project Podcast, a show focused on real conversations aimed to connect this amazing profession full of remarkable people. Through the sharing of collective stories and wisdom and connecting over the many unique challenges we face, we invite you to join our community of veterinary professionals leading intentional lives. And now, here are the hosts of the Veterinary Project Podcast, Dr. Michael Bug and Dr. Jonathan Light. And welcome back to the Veterinary Project Podcast. As always, you're joined by Dr. Jonathan Light and Dr. Michael Bug. Mike, we just finished up with a great Thanksgiving weekend. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Jonathan. Uh, yeah, it was a great weekend. We we managed to have, I think, three Thanksgiving dinners, like two for sure, and then leftovers. So I had my fill of pumpkin pie, cherry pie, tons of turkey. So it was fantastic. That's excellent. Same thing for us. We had two out of three nights were turkey dinners and then the leftovers on the next day at a different friend's house and you can't go wrong on Thanksgiving dinner. And for all you listeners here, we just celebrated, uh, yeah, celebrating the harvest and friends and family up here in Canada, which is great. And with that, we've got a pretty exciting episode today in our expert series. But before we go to that, Mike, why don't you walk us through our quick tip? All right. Uh, Today's quick tip is around habit stacking and gratitude. I believe this comes from the book Atomic Habits, but I've seen it out there in a few spots. So basically, the idea of habit stacking is taking a new habit that you're trying to form and marrying it to something that you already do and using that something that you already do as a trigger to remind you to do your new habit. So for me, one of my favorite habit stacking is practicing gratitude with my morning cup of coffee. So I love coffee. Every morning I have a cup of coffee. And right when I sit down and I'm about to take that first sip, that's always a reminder for me, a trigger for me to say one thing I'm grateful for. And so that's sort of what I would refer to as habit stacking, specifically around gratitude. Um, I know I mentioned the five-minute journal many episodes ago, but those would be two of my favorite uh, gratitude sort of hacks. It's great. Before this episode aired, he said he was going to do this as a quick tip. And I said, I'm going to be learning just as much and I'm going to try that tomorrow morning. So thanks for sharing, Mike. Yeah. Yes. Excellent. Well, with that, we get to move over to our guest bio. Today, we are very happy to be joined by Vicki Pollard. Vicki is a partner with Animal Arts. And as a partner with Animal Arts, Vicki brings unique experiences to the animal care architecture world as both an AHA award-winning architect and certified veterinary technician. She specializes in veterinary hospital design from small general practices to large specialty and emergency facilities. She is also licensed in Alberta, Canada, and has worked on numerous successful hospital renovation and expansions in the Great White North. She is the co-author of Practical Guide to Veterinary Hospital Design, published by AHA Press. Vicki lives in Colorado with a small menagerie that includes her husband, three children, 
their dog Cooper, a bearded dragon, and two beta fish. In this episode, we go into detail in Vicky's start in the architecture world, moving over to becoming a veterinary technician before her transition back into the architecture world with animal arts. And I am not giving away any of the juicy details that are in there because we are talking with somebody who is following their purpose and all the different areas and that it delves through. We talk about how the current COVID pandemic has changed and or brought to light some of the changes in veterinary architecture and hospital design, as well as looking at some of the advancements in the veterinary space and why you should hire a veterinary architect. With that then, therefore we are gonna get going and please welcome to the Veterinary Project Podcast, Vicki Pollard. Vicki, thank you very much for joining us this morning. It is a pleasure to have you on. Uh, you and I have known each other for a number of years now. Uh, you've got to know Mike over the last couple of weeks, and we're really happy to have you on for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate it. A place I thought we could start is diving into your career. I sure. think this is going to be really interesting for our listeners, both from what you do now, as well as what got you to this point in your career. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, the start and, and yeah, the start of yep. your, your schooling? Sure. So probably not a traditional path um, for being an architect, um, but and my, and my parents probably were going to disown me along the way. But uh, it all goes back to, to high school, actually. And I was, you know, to trying to determine what I wanted to go to school for. And I was kind of equally good at art and science and math and, and just really wasn't sure kind of how to combine all those things. So, you know, my student counselor said, well, you should be an architect, of course, you know, that combines all of those different things. So I said, OK, I guess I'll just trust you and uh, decided to to go ahead and venture off into the architecture world. And I'm originally from Pennsylvania. And um, so one of the better architecture schools in Pennsylvania is Penn State. Um, they still do architecture there. So decided to start the architecture program at Penn State. And, and I, it went okay, you know, for the first few years. It was, it was fine. Uh, it was very hard. It was a very hard um, courses and just really hard in studio designing everything. Um, and after a few years, I started to become, I, I don't know, I just didn't really have my heart and soul into it. And so I started to think about how I could um, start to kind of broaden my, my view of the world and, and what architecture could do. And so oddly enough, I started, even while I was at Penn State, I started to volunteer with animals uh, at a raptor center that was at Penn State. And I helped take care of wild birds, um, you know, raptors, obviously, eagles and golden eagles and all sorts of super interesting animals with really big claws and um, really, really loved it. Uh, I actually almost decided to leave architecture right in the middle of volunteering with these animals, but um, I really figured my parents would disown me. So I finished out my last few years and got my, my bachelor's degree in architecture. And how many, and how many years of program is that? For it's a, a five year. So there's a couple different ways you can become an architect. Um, the way that I chose to do it was a five year uh, bachelor of architecture degree. 
So some other folks, um, a path would be four years of undergrad and then two years of a master's uh, degree program, so six years total. So I actually took the shorter route, um, at least on the architecture side, and got it in, got it in five years, and, and then went out into the profession in Philadelphia and started working um, as an architectural intern. And, and that experience that I had at the Raptor Center actually transitioned to another Raptor Center after I got out of school and continued to work with those animals. And then I, and I was still disengaged. I still wasn't sure about architecture. So I, I just decided to keep kind of slowly following this animal path. And I started working at a zoo, oddly enough, in, Norris, in Norristown. Yeah. Two questions. I don't know where Norristown is. So for Canadians, we need to know. Outside, outside of Philadelphia. Outside of Philadelphia. Okay. If you know where Philadelphia is. Yeah. Perfect. We're making, we're making headway here. Yeah. Secondly, had you already always had an interest in animals or particularly birds? Or, or had this come out of left field as something different to try? Yeah, you know, I, I've always loved animals. But I think what was happening in school was, you know, architecture we used to say architecture with a capital A. It was just, it was really focused on like high design, like really just kind of, you know, really out there ideas and, and just kind of coming up with these, these designs that I felt like really didn't have much of a purpose, much of sort of a, an altruistic side to them where, and, and so what I actually, the reason why I got involved with the animals was more trying to relate it to, really to the environment. I was actually thinking like environmental design. I was thinking environmental, like maybe designing nature centers or like some, you know, something like that to try to, to try to make architecture have a little bit more purpose for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I loved animals, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like obsessive about it or <laughs> anything like and that. And yet you still ended up at a zoo. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I ended up at the zoo because I could volunteer there on the weekends um, you know, I, I didn't get paid anything, but it was a small zoo and it started to broaden my view of just all the animals out there and the care that they, that they needed. So this zoo had, you know, jaguars and had, um, buffalo had, you know, um, bobcats, all, all sorts of pretty, pretty cool, um, species. And when I was working there with some of the zookeepers, one of the zookeepers was a veterinary technician. And I had no idea. I had no idea what that even was. Um, I don't know, as a, as a kid, you know, if I went to the vet, I didn't really even think about who was taking care of the animals. And so I started asking her about, you know, about what that meant. And, mm -hmm. you know, she's a zookeeper with this degree, and she was able to really help treat the animals and, um, you know, really take care of them. And so that's actually what was kind of the pivot point is realizing that, that there was such a thing. And, um, and that's where everything changed and completely. everything completely changed. And, um, I started going down this veterinary, very specific veterinary path. Um, I, I left architecture, um, left You're it completely. Disowned? Disowned left it, I, dis I disowned it. Yeah. I, you <laughs> know, I left it, you know, as far as I was concerned at that time, I had no intention of going back to it. Um, I thought I was going to be a veterinary nurse. Um, you know, for a living. And I, and that's, that's the direction that I was headed. And um, so I left Philadelphia and moved out to Colorado and uh, went back to school to become a veterinary technician. And that was uh, a 
four-year degree program, correct? It's not. It's actually, they do it really quickly. Okay. Um, it is it is a year and a half straight. Oh, um, they, don't, they don't take any, they don't take breaks, at least the school that I went to, which was, uh, it's called the Bell Ray Institute of Technology. And they only focus on, on animal technology, um, becoming a veterinary technician. They don't have anything else within their program. Um, so it was very focused. And, and yeah, so I, I left Philadelphia and moved out to Colorado, not knowing a soul and, and um, became a veterinary technician. <laughs> and was there a reason why Colorado was the place to do it, yeah. given all of the different school programs in America? Well, the Animal Planet um, television show actually had a really cool uh, commercial that always advertised Bell Ray Institute on it. To be okay. honest, that's probably why I went there. But when I started researching it, there's a lot of schools that, te that teach veterinary technology, but they are um, like junior colleges, colleges that also have other kind of trade programs within them. And so I felt like it was it was wise to go to a school that only did only did that. They didn't have any other focus and Bellray was one of the only um, options for that. So that's what took me out of architecture. So you graduate then a year and a half later from veterinary tech school and you're back, you're into practice then. So ignoring yep. architecture, that's done, that career. Yep. It's over. <laughs> over. Did you start off at Alameda East, the hospital we're going to talk about, or was it somewhere else to start with before going there? No, I, I uh, absolutely started at Alameda East. So um, Bell Ray Institute actually was created by one of the original veterinarians who started Alameda East. Um, he and another uh, vet actually started that program. And so there's all these ties um, between the school and that hospital. And so when I was starting to do my internship for the vet tech program, I started working at Alameda East. And so initially I just started at the front desk, you know, working as a receptionist, helping with the exam room processing, you know, bringing clients in, that sort of thing. Worked on really busy emergency um, swing shifts was kind of what worked during school and kind of getting my feet wet really with the emergency side of things. Um, really, really fast-paced hospital, very tight. They had no space whatsoever to even function in, but they were really busy. And um, yeah, just started at the front desk. And, um, you know, then after graduating and going through my internship program, um, you know, kind of getting into the treatment areas and working as a, as a technician, um, I pretty much worked you know, kind of all the different shifts and all, you know, all the different functions within, within that hospital. Yeah. Was it a hard transition moving from a um, professional program like architect school and then moving into the veterinary technician program and graduating and now you're into a practice of a whole different light than what you had done back out east? Yeah, it, I mean, it, the biggest difference was just moving, you know, across the country with no friends um, or family to speak of. But, you know, architecture is... The program that I was in, and I think similar to a lot of other architecture programs, it's very small. Um, there was only about 100 people in my uh, freshman class at Penn State, even though the school, you know, my overall freshman class, like outside of my college, had like 5,000, you know, 5,000 students. But my, my program only had about 100 students in it. And by the time I graduated from Penn State, it only had 22 wow. graduated. Okay. 
Um, so, you know, the attrition rate was pretty high. So going to, going to tech school, it was similar in the fact that it was actually a small kind of tight knit group of, of students and friends, like once you were in the program, which I think made the transition a lot, a lot easier. And, you know, the vet tech or the vet industry in general, like everybody's so nice. I mean, everybody's, everybody's so nice and friendly. And I mean, especially here in Colorado, it's, you know, everybody just wants to help you out. So it was, it wasn't that hard. Excellent. Yeah. And I, oh, I just want to jump in. I have a quick question for you, Vicki, with, yeah, like. with that, with that move, like from the East coast to Colorado, that takes a lot of courage, you know, to, to recognize, you know, that you're, you're going to pivot your career. Can you pinpoint yeah. Like that decision process, like, was it something that you just decided on and took action or did you have a big support network that you ran it by? Yeah. Like, what did that look like? You know, my parents, my, my friends were always supportive, you know, of, of, of whatever my decisions were. And, you know, I, I think that takes a lot of courage from my parents' side of things. You know, they, they obviously helped me through architecture school and, and thought I was going to, you know, pursue that. So the fact that they, they encouraged me and supported me as I as I chose this path was was pretty great. <clears throat> um, I think that the the pivot point though for me was probably at that zoo. Um, you know, just being exposed to the veterinary world in that way and understanding that there there's other career paths. You know, you know, other than being a veterinarian, you know, there's actually other things related to the industry that you can do and you can still you know, make a difference. So I think looking back now, that was probably actually what sealed it for me. And I felt, I felt so strongly about feeling like I wasn't making a difference as an architect that it, it, it just kind of all fell into place to be quite honest. Um, if that makes any, if that makes any sense. <laughs> sure does. And then from that standpoint, just following up on Mike, because we do get this question a decent amount is, once you'd made that pivot point decision, was that something that you jumped on and moved forward with right away? Did it take some time of reflection? How did that look in your world? Um, I mean, it probably only took a couple months of preparation and really it was, it was pretty quick. It was really just trying to get the, all the logistics in place, you know, in terms of applying to school and getting an apartment and, you know, getting things set up. But it, it all probably rolled in about, you know, three to five months, I think once, once I kind of had that revelation. <laughs> choice was made and then it's make it happen. Choice was made. And I think, you know, to some degree, like the firm that I was working for um, in Philadelphia, who, who actually was an environmental architecture firm, they actually designed um, nature centers, which you know, that's the reason I picked them. Um, they knew I was working with animals. They, you know, they'd hear me talking about it all the time. So I don't, I don't think they were too, I don't think they were too shocked um, when I, when I told them. Yeah. Excellent. And now this is where the story gets very interesting. You're working at Alameda East and share with us the confluence of interactions that, you know, lead you down this path you're at now. Sure. Sure. So I am working away as a veterinary technician um, at this emergency. It's actually a hybrid practice, um, so general practice, specialty, and emergency. And um, they, the owner, was looking to build a new building right next door, a brand new veterinary hospital, probably three times the size of their current hospital. And um, 
I just had started, you know, working, you know, not too long before that process started. And he sent, you know, we didn't have email. Well, I guess we had email back then, but basically sent a message out, like posted it on a board or something by the mailboxes and said, you know, here are the drawings for the new building. Um, you know, if anybody wants to provide feedback, any of the staff, he just opened it up to the entire hospital staff and said, if anybody wants to provide feedback, you know, please do. Just a real simple post, and I was like, "Well, you know, I kind of do have a bachelor's degree in architecture, so." Um, and no one there, nobody at the hospital, especially not the owner of the hospital. He he had no idea that that I was an architect or architectural intern, and um, and so I took those drawings home. I took a copy home, and I spent a few days just like bleeding all over them with red ink, and. Um, came up with all sorts of ideas. I was gonna like reverse the whole front of the building and like change how the clients were coming in and all of this and and I just slipped it back into his mailbox. And then uh, about a day, or, a day or two later, I like, they had like an intercom system or whatever, you know, in the old building. He said, you know, my name at the time, Vicki Stepler, please, you know, come up to Dr. Taylor's office. I'm like, oh gosh, I'm being called into the principal's office. You know, he's, he's the owner of this practice. And uh, I was like, well, I hope it's good, you know. And uh, so he, he was like, calls me into his office. Like, what, what is going on? Like, what? He's like looking at these drawings. He's like, who are you? You've been working here for like a year. He's like, what's, what's going on? So that that was definitely definitely a pivot point and you know again i still had no intention um of, of going back this way but um you know i figured i would just try to help him out you know with with what i with what i knew about working in the space and i knew all of the staff really really well you know i intimately knew exactly how the lab technician worked and you know i had spent so much time with this group of people that i felt like it was important to, you know, to give that information, you know, what my thoughts were to, to them and hopefully, you know, improve it. And, and so I started um, really just helping with the design work after that. Um, I can't really say how, how soon it transitioned where I was doing it full time with him, but the vet, um, Dr. Taylor, um, Dr. Robert Taylor, who, who owned um, Alameda East, he hired me on as the owner's rep. So basically I was his assistant, you know, looking out for him on, you know, on the construction of this, this new building. And so I ended up working full time on that until, until the whole thing was done, you know, until, until everything was complete. And we, you know, we basically refined every space um, of that hospital. So I did stop becoming I, I didn't tech anymore during that time frame um and i guess i realized that maybe i wouldn't go back and i i never fully went back um but that was that was where things really changed and all from you stepping out yeah. for what you had already had experience in and saying hey i'll see where i can help out and yeah, no expectations not? afterwards yeah why not right i mean if if you think you can help you should you know and especially with all the people that I work with, you know, I, I just felt like it was important to do. Uh, Sound like you could be the voice for them as well. Yeah. Too, right? You had that credibility. You had that time in there for being there for a year and yeah. what else can you you know, help? Yeah, them? it was, it was really cool because I could sit there within each of their spaces and 
like draw it out for them, talk to them about their equipment. Like, I mean, we went through with everybody, like we went through this like intense sort of redesign of all their spaces. And, and I, I, I hope, I think they were all happy in the end. I mean, you're never fully happen, happy with a construction project, but um, I think it, I think it helped um, with their building. And uh, so we got, we got to the very end of this project and I was like, okay, well, now what? You know, he doesn't, he doesn't need me anymore. I was the owner's rep. Well, they then decided that the old building um, was also going to be renovated as well. And so they told, turned their old building into boarding, daycare, rehabilitation. Um, they even did uh, some really cool technology things like force plate analysis, um, uh, kinetics, like a kinetics lab where they were going to do research and things. And and so I helped in the same manner um, as the owner's rep on, on that building as well next door. And so, you know, overall that whole campus has, you know, basically every, you know, every service that you can possibly get for, for veterinary um, hospital. Um, and then after all of that, <laughs> I was asked to be the general manager of the boarding and daycare facility. So um, that was probably my least favorite job of uh, my life <laughs> even compared to like being a pizza delivery person you know back in high school like so it's a low managing well managing a boarding and daycare facility it, i mean it's really hard um it's hard because there's there's a lot of behavioral issues that you have to deal with with the dogs like in the daycare setting and you know trying to manage the client and like communicate clearly with the client on Hey, you know, your dog just got in this dog fight and what are we going to do about it? Or, um, and I think also the, the pay for people in a boarding facility and the staff members weren't paid very well. And so they didn't show up for shifts. And so this place was open 24 seven. Um, they always had somebody there watching the animals. And so, you know, I would be there in the middle of the night on a regular basis because somebody wouldn't show up. Um, so it was it was challenging. It was a really challenging um, position, and I was there for about a year and a half as the, as the GM. Long enough, long enough to get a good. Long enough, in. long enough. I was like, okay, I need I need to do something else now. <laughs> I need out. Vicky, I just want to jump back when you yeah. when you finished the completion of that new building that you know you had your design input kind of all the way throughout. How did that feel for you? You know, like to finish this journey following your purpose and then see it standing there as a real life building. Yeah, I, I loved um, seeing all of the spaces, all the interior spaces um, and, you know, seeing everything obviously come to fruition. What was interesting, though, was even through the design process, by the time we got to the very end, there was already things, of course, that the team wanted to change because technology had already changed or they had gotten this new piece of equipment or, you know, business, you know, the business dynamic had changed in some way. So it was really interesting to see what I thought I had solved in, you know, in the beginning of the design process was very different, you know, at the end. Um, and so I think it's just a constantly evolving, you know, uh, thing. Yep. I mean, Always situation. Yeah, and, and I think that's, you know, I, I shouldn't, Spoil it. I'll, I'll I'll say it later. Never mind. <laughs> the next step. <laughs> well, let's go there. What what did the yeah. next step look like? Getting you to where you are today. 
Yeah, so I think the next step is I really didn't want to be a general manager of a boarding facility because it was really hard. Um, so I was fortunate enough to be in Colorado. And, and in Colorado, there, there was and still is an architecture firm that only designs animal care facilities. And the name is Animal Arts, which, as, as you guys know, that's where I actually now work. Um, and so they're just up in Boulder, Colorado, just a short distance from Denver, which is where Alameda East was. And so I kind of knew of them over the years, um, had kind of realized they were, they were in the area. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I've been back on the architecture side long enough now that, that I should give it a shot. But it had been a, a hiatus from architecture officially for about six years um, at that point. And, you know, that's a little bit rusty to, to kind of jump back fully into, into architecture at that point. But I, I just gave it a shot and interviewed there. And um, it was a great fit, really great group of people. And that's all that they do. That's all that we do is design animal care facilities. So um, I've been there now for 15 years. Um, fortunately, uh, because of my background, I, I really focus on the veterinary hospital side. That is all that I've done for the past 15 years is, you know, just like with Dr. Taylor and, and his team, I just do it now for, you know, for other clients and, um, you know, pick their brains on what they want and what they need and, and then help, you know, help design their, their hospitals. And so, um, that's what I've done for, for the past um, 15 years. And we also do, you know, shelters and facilities like seeing eye dog facilities, like guide dogs for the blind is um, an example. The only thing we don't really do are um, lab, like lab animal facilities. Okay. You know, we don't, we don't do anything that relates to any type of experimentation. Yeah, research, that, uh, <laughs> research, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So then transitioning a little bit into 2020 along mm -hmm. those lines of where hospital veterinary hospital design is, uh, you mm -hmm. have worked on a number of um, practices and expansions and new builds. And now we're on to a new one right now. What does 2020 in the era of COVID look like for an architectural firm like yourselves? You know, we've talked about this at length. Mm -hmm. I think very much worth sharing uh, with our listeners because this is an era area that is continuing to evolve. Yeah. I mean, for our firm, uh, I'll just talk about the firm specifically and then maybe more about the, in, the industry as a whole. But, you know, our firm is is doing really well through, you know, through this this whole challenging time that everybody's going through. Um, you know, architecture firms can transition to a virtual work environment pretty, pretty easily. We've been able to keep the team up and running and, and still serving our clients. And and what we've found with animal care, um, you know, specific, I mean, it's probably the same on shelter too, at least for this pandemic, but the industry is very resilient. Um, you know, the, the work really hasn't slowed down very much. I think, and you guys may all be witnessing this in your own practices, but, you know, clients are, you know, animals still need to be seen. Animals still need, you know, whether it's emergency care or specialty care or even just wellness, I mean, they the need is still there, the demand is there. And with the pandemic specifically, 
you know, people are really starting to be more critical about their hospitals and about the spaces that everybody is in, right? I mean, you're even thinking about the grocery store. I mean, you're, you're thinking about every space, you know, and how how it's affecting, you know, your well-being now. And I think when you combine the fact that that's going on with how busy the industry is, you know, it's it's good for animal arts. You know, we've been we've been very very fortunate yeah. so far. Yeah. We've talked throughout this and, you know, we went from their conversation in March where it was, oh, oh what's going to happen to our conversation now, you know, in this October, November period where it's, hey, we're, we're months out now of yeah. what all of the, uh, the different planning is. Do you feel from your standpoint that changes that are occurring right now within hospital design are here to stick or is it more specific to COVID and pandemic related? And I asked that in, in reference to our recent um, webinar and sorry, two day ball there we had mm -hmm. the future look like in veterinary medicine in terms of hospital and, and shelter design. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think some of the changes that we're seeing are definitely here to stay. Um, and some will probably be only used temporarily and we'll forget about all of that, you know, hopefully in, a year, maybe yeah, six months. Okay. We'll, we'll yeah. say a year because that's probably more realistic. Um, so, you know, it just depends on what the idea is or what the trend or, or concept is. I think that the things that are here to stay is, you know, really trying to provide more options for your hospital to um, have exterior doors, as an example, or exterior exam rooms. Um, you know, spaces where you can actually get out, depending upon your climate, you know, where your hospital's located, you know, really taking advantage of exterior spaces. I think that's absolutely here to stay. Um, and I think looking at traffic flow from a disease control standpoint is here to stay as well. We already do that in our shelters a lot, but we haven't focused as much on it in our animal hospital design that I think this virus and just, you know, the way that clients and patients are moving, we're, we're really looking at that under a microscope now. So I think those traffic changes, um, you know, even this idea, and I know Jonathan, you're a fan of it, two door exam rooms, um, you know, while they take up a lot more space and, and you know, cause you just saw the design I sent you, um, you know, two door exam rooms take up a lot more space, but when you look at what they provide in terms of, workflow and you know just safety of the patients and all that kind of stuff safety of your staff um you know they're they're worth it so i think some of those things are are definitely definitely going to stick around and was that in the past if you're talking about traffic flow whether it's for patients or clients was that a more of a want if people had the space as opposed to a need compared to 2020 when you've been designing yeah we didn't talk about it in relationship to like the overlap between the client and the, the staff member in the room, like that mm -hmm. actual, like you're getting too close, you're within that six foot bubble. Like we never talked about it that way before. We only talked about it from, this is, might sound kind of mean, but this is the reality. Um, you know, sometimes veterinarians didn't want, or, or technical staff, they didn't want the client to see them in, wow. you know, in the lobby space. Like yep. they, didn't, they didn't want to have to come out into the lobby to then, you know, Mrs. Smith or whoever would all of a sudden go, oh, hey, I have this other question for you, you know, and you kind of get sabotaged and have to, you know, deal with it. So most of the time, I think the reasoning was trying to control client, like uh, interaction, line, line yeah. of sight Correct. compared 
the, compared to the, just the, the bio um, safety hazard of, of kind of, um, you know, intermixing your six foot radius. <laughs> so, um, so those conversations are changing for sure. And, but, you know, there's also super easy things that we never did uh, before, such as touchless faucets. I mean, throughout the facility, I mean, why not? I mean, the technology has been there forever. Who needs to actually, you know, use your hand to turn on a faucet anymore? But a lot of our hospitals and shelters that we design always, you know, you always had to use the handle. So quick, easy change, you know, replace all your faucets so that you don't, you don't have to touch it. <laughs> so, Simple, I mean, there's, there's like super easy things. They're like, oh, wait, why, why did we actually do that before? <laughs> yep. When you're looking at hospital design right now in terms of technology as well, it's ever changing. You and I have had this discussion even in the last three months of what's possible and not possible in the ideal. What does that look like to you as you're designing out hospitals, whether they're small GPs or larger centers? Yeah. How does that, how does that affect your design? Um. You know, we, we haven't seen this directly yet because I think we haven't designed enough hospitals, I'll say post-COVID, but yet. But I think um, obviously just providing more locations for, you know, flat screen monitors and, and ways that either clients or, you know, the staff can communicate with each other digitally instead of having to be face-to-face -face, um, if, if they choose that. Telehealth you know, I know the regulations are different in every single state and I'm not sure in Canada kind of where things stand for you. And I, I think you same thing, province by province, province by province. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're being asked in some designs to provide, you know, meeting rooms or telehealth rooms so that, you know, team members can be actually doing their appointments, their telehealth appointments from the hospital, but in a safe environment. Um, so you're just setting that room up, from you know connectivity standpoint, so that they can do that. I mean, it doesn't take much um, other than square footage, you know, in in the building. So um, we do have some people asking for that, but right now it tends to be a little bit larger hospitals that are that are looking to do that compared to you know general practices who really still want you know a lot of exam room space as well. Yeah. Excellent, Mike. Anything on there? I've got another question, but I want to make sure we... No, I got nothing uh, pressing. I was laughing about your uh, two-door exam rooms because I've worked in those kind of practices and I've worked in single door and you're totally right. Like there's nothing faster than a veterinarian trying to blitz through the reception area <laughs> or the waiting room because you just get bogged down. Like it's just an efficiency thing. Yeah. Don't look yeah. them in the eyes. Yeah. Don't look them in the yes. eyes. You look them in the eyes, you're done. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. And in, in an emergency setting too, of course, you also do have some clients who are obviously emotionally distraught because they're, you know, their, their pet is, you know, in, in danger of dying and that sort of thing. And so we like to provide two door exam rooms for the ability of someone to get out of that room without having to, you know, go across that, that distraught client. So I mean, there's, there's really good reasons for them as well. Um, but what I love is that every single practitioner is different. You know, Jonathan's obviously different um, than, than other veterinarians that I've worked with. And, you know, some, some love that interaction. They don't want two doors. They, they absolutely want single doors. They want to be completely exposed, you know, to the clients at all times. And, I mean, we've even had clients... Um, this was the facility that we did in Japan. 
they didn't even have doors on the back side of their exam rooms. And it allowed for the client to be able to walk straight back into the treatment room, engage with what was going on, and, um, you know, really hyper-efficient. I mean, you could see tons of patients that way, but, you know, some practitioners, there's no way, there's no way they would want, they would want that. Very cool. Very, very cool. That kind of leads us into another question that I had. Um, and this is completely unsolicited. You haven't had me ask this. You're not paying us to do this. Any of the above okay. is advancements in veterinary, uh, veterinary space. And why should you hire a veterinary architect? I'm sold. I know it. I've seen <laughs> the benefits of it over and over. I have no idea how we could have done what we did without you guys. But yeah. why should the average person look to a veterinary architect? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's for a lot of the reasons that you've already kind of heard me talk about during, during my sort of my story, mm -hmm. which is, you know, firms like ours who have listened to, I don't know how many clients over the years, like every time we listen to those clients, we gain, we gain information, we gain knowledge from each and every one of you. And so every time we lay out a space or we work through, you know, the design, hopefully we're making things even better. And so a firm that doesn't have an architecture firm that doesn't have that experience, I mean, they're, they're not going to lay it out as efficiently. Um, they're not, they're not going to be able to predict what your needs are, you know, as well. So, you know, when we talk to our clients, the thing that we, we do like to kind of sell people on is really just the initial, the initial layout, initial, figuring out what your program is, figuring out what makes you guys tick, and then laying out the initial plan is really where there's the most to be gained um, from a veterinary-specific architect or an animal care architect. Um, and then, you know, once you get that, get that kind of baseline um, down, then I think, you know, you could certainly go to another architect, you could stick with us, but, you know, that's really where there's the most to be gained in terms of efficiency, yeah, it's. I mean, it's all about just all those years of all the vets, all the all the vets who have told us exactly how they like to, to run their exam rooms. Like you would not believe. And I would assume there's probably ninety percent overlap, but it's in that ten percent where the new ideas, the alternative, cool thoughts come out. Yeah, there there is a ton of overlap. Um, you know, the specialty services. So I I love designing specialty hospitals and emergency hospitals, and I think where we can really innovate is, is obviously based on technology and new equipment and new procedures that, that you guys are doing. So, you know, trying to understand what those are and, you know, what's coming down the road and, and how that all works with your facility, I think is really where innovation occurs. Um, and, you know, but, but there's also even general practices who have taught me, you know, have taught me new things about just creating a very, you know, kind of hospitality based, you know, lobby and you know talking about how they how they engage with their existing clientele and how their clients really like you know to be you know uh, worked with on a regular basis yeah that's fantastic well i know having gone through that a couple of times in the program which is really sketching out those those basic needs and, and the the wish list as you put it so well to me as compared to what reality sometimes looks like <laughs> so important <laughs> trying to fit those blocks together yeah, Jonathan tells me, okay, well, this is this is what I want. And I'm going, mm, please, please don't tell me you want more than more than three treatment tables. I'm pretty sure Amazing. that's not yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing that. Yeah, she doesn't say no. She just lets us come to our own conclusion of what's possible. Well, 
Well, it's interesting because what I what I really like to do, I like I don't want to stifle anybody, right? So I want to I want to gather all the information, and then you know, I want to talk to you about what your priorities really are, and and it it will all work out in the end as long as you understand what the priorities are you know what's important to you you know you know maybe your interaction with clients is more important that's more of your focus versus somebody else who just really absolutely wants you know a ct room or, or, or whatever it is and and then we go okay well you tell me what your priority is and then we'll make we'll make that happen <laughs> you might need to bring us back to that a couple times we, but... we'll bring you back <laughs> that's great Mike, anything further from your end? This is fantastic. And I think it's really great learning opportunity for uh, our listeners that are not aware or have not worked with a veterinary architect in the past as to the, the massive benefits and especially somebody with your experience, Vicki, um, the history and, and how you've gone about getting to animal arts is amazing. Yeah. Talk about a journey. Yeah. That's the thing that jumps out to me. That's a, such a cool story and journey, you know, following your purpose. It's funny how things work out that way you know like there's no way you could have predicted that this was the the final destination or you know where where you're at but it's pretty cool yeah not not at all and i'm i'm really glad that i didn't give up in architecture school and and quit when i was kind of disengaged because it would have made my path a lot more difficult <laughs> in in the long run um i did want to just add one one thought about this whole pandemic and sort of the changes that we're all going through in our world. And that is um, before all of this started with the pandemic, we as a firm um, have worked a lot with a veterinarian named Marty Becker. Um, some of you guys may know him and he, you know, is basically the, the founder of the fear free movement, um, you know, in, in our worlds here. And, and we've worked a lot with him over the years on fear free and, you know, fear-free concepts about lowering stress for animals, you know, within the clinic, um, even being brought to the clinic, all the, those kinds of things, all really, really great ideas. But what I think is interesting is now looking at the pandemic and social distancing design um, and trying to figure out what concepts from fear-free really should still um, apply and which ones may need to maybe be changed or altered or improved. Um, because because of the social distancing um, aspect that we all have in our world right now. So what, it, what intrigues me about kind of looking forward into, into 2021 and, and further is how are we going to continue to create stress-free free or lower stress environments for animals in our, in our facilities, but still also keep them safe from, you know, the pandemic, social distancing, or any other, you know, hazard that we have. Um, I think a lot about curbside, uh, I don't know, in Canada, you guys are probably doing that as well, you know, curbside service for veterinarians. And, you know, I think about whether or not that's fear free, whether that is low stress or high stress for an animal. Um, you know, I, I can kind of see pros and cons to that. But I, I wonder, moving forward, you know, what can we do even for a service like curbside to create a less stressful environment? Like, is it a garage space that you pull into with your car and then, you know, you're able to, you know, get your animal out that way or are there ways to kind of interface, um, you know, with the building differently so that we can keep things still lower stress, which I think can be a challenge during, you know, during these times. Um, so just looking ahead, 
Um, I think that that's, that's something that I'm really curious about. And I'm curious from, from you guys, you know, out there in the field working through all this, you know, especially if you're familiar with fear free and, you know, you already practice that within your, within your hospital, you know, what kind of things haven't worked, you know, for you related to all the, you know, all the changes and what things have worked. And uh, I'm just kind of curious. About that. I haven't heard anybody talk about it yet. Um, I haven't really received a lot of input from, from any of our clients. So I'm just kind of curious where that, where that's going. Well, I love it. And I think, uh, you know, as we're going to get your contact information out here in a couple of minutes for those that will hopefully have some comments that they can get back to you to please share. Awesome. Great question. So with that, we need to move to the next segment in our podcast, which is the impact round. And in the impact round, we will ask you a number of questions, which you can ask or you can answer shortly or go as long as you'd like. And the first question that we have is, Vicki, are you a cat or a dog person? Such a hard question. Um, I was a cat person originally in my earlier life. Then I had children. <laughs> I realized that I wasn't the cat person anymore because I just couldn't handle um, all of the care and personality. <laughs> and now I would say I'm actually a dog person and I'm a dog person mainly because they're easier to cuddle with, if that makes any sense. They're just, they're bigger. I don't know. I just, I love, I love all animals, but I, I'll say dog. I'll say dog. The first person that's made a change, Mike, I don't know if we're allowed to have that. <laughs> Especially that she's gone from cat to dog. I'm not sure. I know you guys are cat people we're too. We're totally judging right oh, now. Totally no. judging. There's, there's no bias on answer. <laughs> True or false. I knew I wanted to be a veterinarian since I was a kid. Any thoughts of that when you were younger as to whether veterinarian was on the list? You know, looking back now, um, I certainly think that could have been a, a definite um, career path for me. But as a kid, I never, I never, never, never thought about it. Um, it just didn't. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't think I didn't think I was smart enough for it to be honest. Um, but no. <laughs> How would your friends describe what you do for a living, Vicky? So it's interesting. I actually asked my son this question and um, cause I was curious what my nine year old um, boy would say uh, my job is or what I do for a living. And he just said, you're the best mommy in the world. That's what he said. I swear it was like the best thing ever. I thought for sure, because he's seen me work a lot during this pandemic. I thought for sure he would say something about architecture, but that was not his answer. Um, Friends in general, though, would of course say that I design animal care facilities. Most of them know that I design animal facilities because there's so many animal people out there in this world. So they actually remember what I do. Um, so, yeah. Nice. That's, that's top three best answers right there. <laughs> many episodes, but that one's a good one right there. <laughs> look up to. What is your favorite hobby? Don't laugh. Um, it's Zumba. Um, I like to dance. And if you don't know what Zumba is, then you've been living under a rock for quite some time. <laughs> so it's like Latin dance and African dance. Um, so yeah, Zumba. And uh, I also take my Jeep out and go four wheeling a fair amount with my Jeep. As you can in Colorado. As I can. Yeah. What in this world are you most grateful for? My family. For sure. hundred percent. Yeah. Awesome. 
So going back to my earlier point, if there are those that want to reach out, share their comments on Fear Free or what they're doing in this world and or want to get a hold of you related to any other topic, Vicki, how would they do so? The best way would be my email address, which is just Vicki, V-I-C-K-I, at animalarts.com. Really, really simple. Um, you can also check us out, of course, on our website, which is just animalarts.com. Excellent. And we'll make sure that's in the show notes for anybody that needs to have a look at it. Uh, before we come to a close today, uh, it took us a couple of months to put this together. It has gone exactly as I thought it would. We didn't put you in or put you into any curveball situations. So I'm happy about that. You said yes. And <laughs> it's fantastic. We're really happy to have you on, Vicki. It, it means a lot. Uh, I think there is a lot to be gained here within our veterinary community. Again, in an area that not a lot of people think about up until time it is for a redesign new hospital expansion and looking at what services are out there um, to be able to share your story on how you've reached this area. And uh, is it's um, as I say to many guests, it's very impressive because you're literally you're, you're living your purpose and you can see that in what you do day to day. So yeah. really impressive. Yeah. Thank you. I feel very fortunate. Happy to have you on. Yeah. Thanks so Thank much, Vicki. Very cool. Thank you. Definitely. And as what we do with all of our guests is we want to ask you, what message do you want to leave for the veterinary community? So it's a hard one. It feels like a big task, but um, I think for the veterinary community specifically is, you know, think about your environment. We've all been thinking about it a lot. Um, either working from home or changing our hospitals. Really think about the design of your environment because good design can actually have really good outcomes for your patients, obviously that you see just patient outcomes in general, um, for your staff, staff retention, and for your own well-being, um, you know, when you go to work every day. So even if it's just a tiny, small change, you know, in your hospital, think, think about your environment and think about you know, how, how you can improve it. That would be the item to leave you guys with. Thank you for listening to the Veterinary Project Podcast. As a recap, on behalf of our hosts, the Veterinary Project Podcast will be releasing new episodes weekly. So be sure to tune in as we bring you more conversations aimed at helping you enjoy a life well lived. If you enjoyed what you heard on the show and you want to stay in the know, please like, love, and or subscribe to the podcast on the listening platform of your choosing, as we're available on all the usual suspects. If you know of others that may benefit from these conversations, we'd love it if you please share the show with them, as this will help us grow our community to reach more and more veterinary professionals. Speaking of which, if you are a veterinary professional and would like to get connected with more like-minded individuals who are joining us on this journey, please send an email to theveterinaryprojectpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll invite you to be a part of our private Facebook group. General feedback, requests for information, or perhaps requests to be a guest on the show can also be sent to the Veterinary Project Podcast at gmail.com. Dr. Michael Bug and Dr. Jonathan Light, thank you for listening to the show, and we'll catch you again next week for another episode of the Veterinary Project Podcast. Bye for now. Bye for now.